When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with the Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The first thing we notice about this passage is the variety of people leading the church in Antioch. This has become a correct representation of its community. The cosmopolitan nature of Antioch is kind of being reflected in the cosmopolitan nature of the church of Antioch and its leadership. I attended a very large church once in Redfern in Sydney. Redfern is known for a very strong community of what? The indigenous community. A very, very large church, not one single indigenous leader. Antioch was doing something really cool here. You've got a Cyprian Levite, Barnabas. Barnabas came from Cyprus. You've got some Africans. Simon called Niger, the black one. That's what that means there. And Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene was in the North African region. You've got a blue blood in there, Manaean. Someone who in another life lived at close quarters with Herod Antipas. And you have a Jewish Roman citizen, Saul of Tarsus. This was a church with a very unique DNA about it. Unlike Jerusalem, they weren't facing intense persecution at this time. As we learned a couple of weeks ago, there wasn't any dominant religious group in this place. So there was no one feeling out of sorts. It was just another religious group in a, in a, in a pile of a heap of others. There was no hindrances for mission in Antioch. They weren't being persecuted like Jerusalem was. They weren't bracing for famine like Jerusalem was either. We've already had an Antioch offering taken to take back to Jerusalem because there was a prophetic word saying a famine was coming and it certainly did. History shows that it did. And also, because of their cosmopolitan nature, they had probably a stronger eye on the Gentile mission than the Jerusalem church would have too. Only because it was in their sphere of influence, in their peripheral vision, a whole lot more than Jerusalem was. Jerusalem understood in principle that Gentile mission was now a thing. But in practice, Antioch was simply just better positioned for it. And we see that the Holy Spirit is in agreement with that because he starts guiding this church to do more. And we read that Saul and Barnabas are set aside for missionary expedition. So what immediately follows and what we're about to look at this morning in survey form is the result of that instruction and obedience. It's the first missionary journey. As we engage with the next couple of chapters, we'll see that Luke is pretty much giving us a highlight reel of the tour. I don't think he could possibly have documented every single thing that took place. And I imagine that over two chapters, a whole lot more took place. 
I reckon you could have written Acts all over again just on this trip. We have a highlight reel, and out of this highlight reel, I'm going to hone in on just a couple of a couple of moments that are in the story, three moments. And I have two things in mind as I come to you today to come along, to read the scriptures with you today. One, this is a journey of evangelizing almost exclusively Gentile crowds. Yes, there are synagogues present, but the majority of the work that is being done here is Gentiles, people that are not associated with God. Pretty much like what our current mission field looks like if you study the religious and philosophical mindset of our world. And with that in mind, we're going to look in that setting at what I believe are belief blockers. Some elements in play among the Gentiles that might stop the advance of the gospel if we don't get on top of them. If we're not uh, you know, diligent with, with what we do and not vigilant with what we look, you know, we're not keeping good eye on what is going on here. With all those things in mind, we're going to start into the tour and our first stop today is in Cyprus. Cyprus makes the perfect, is perfect sense to start there. Why would you think so? Because Barnabas comes from there. Alright, so we're going to start with his hometown, for home, home turf first. So we're going to go into Cyprus and go from there. Here we go. From verse, chapter 13, verse 4. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed about the teaching of the Lord. The island of Cyprus is a key piece of real estate because of its position in the shipping lanes between Syria, Asia Minor and Greece. It had once been Egyptian soil, but was taken over by the Romans, and then later on, Egypt itself was taken over by the Romans also. It had two main cities which the missionaries visited. Salamis to the east, where they, where they landed there, that was an administrative centre of the island, and Paphos to the west was the provincial capital. Our passage tells us that Saul and Barnabas took the cross-island route. That means they travelled 90 miles on foot from east to west. That's a decent bit of travel, right? 90, minutes, 90 miles on foot. And I thought, you know, driving five minutes to church was hard. <laughs> You'll notice that we have a Roman official in place here. If you're trying to work out ranks of ancient officials, because I know you are, 
Pontius Pilate, the guy who washed his hands at Jesus' trial, was a procurator, a governor of an unstable part of the empire. He reported directly to the emperor. The area where Israel was, was a bit of a volatile hotbed that really didn't like Roman rule. They had a bit of military might there, and obviously the emperor had paid close attention to what was going on there, which is really interesting given that Jesus came from there. Good way to get word out, isn't it? A proconsul was appointed as a governor of a more peaceful region of the empire. And since little threat was present, a proconsul reported to the Roman Senate instead. They didn't go to the emperor, they just went to the Senate. A little bit less pressure to report. And the Senate can then filter what the emperor needed to know after that. Sergius Paulus is the Cyprian proconsul at this time. And our passage takes us straight into his quarters, which is pretty amazing. Pretty good that they can get to the top so fast. He's not a follower of God in any way, but we read that he's requested a hearing from these two evangelists. Now, it appears to be a rather noble intention here. He wants to hear the word of the Lord. We need to make no mistake here. He wanted to know what was really going on. All right, He was, making, he was keeping an eye on things too. The initial inquiry was... What are these guys doing here? Because how many know, when Christianity comes rolling in and the Holy Spirit does his thing, the city takes notice, right? Things change. Things are different. And a little town on the side there, of, of, on the end of Cyprus there, this would have stood out. There would have been some noise being made. No doubt he wanted to go, wanted to go what is going on here? But also, we can believe here that there was some um, some real interest in what he was saying. In that setting, our first belief blocker is poised to strike. And we read about him when we're introduced to Bar-Jesus or Elimus. Bar-Jesus means son of salvation. Elimus simply means magician or sorcerer. Sorcerers in that time most certainly would have had some sort of power that they could put on display. Their demonic-inspired ability would have been able to perform at least some miracles. But their main job description, given from below, was to manipulate the people that they were performing for. To bring them under their spell. And their work was complete when they, and therefore the devil, was pulling all the strings of those people. So here's your first belief blocker. Spiritual resistance. Demonic resistance. As Christians, we understand that we have an enemy in the spiritual realm. It's his desire to occupy the hearts of those around us. And he is fully intent on ensuring that Jesus doesn't take up residence in that place that he wants. To do that, he will come across as the giver of fun, the source of all worldly wisdom, permitter of all sorts of depravity in lives. He's the voice that tells us that if it feels good, do it, and that we don't need any other influence in our lives except his. In our passage today, this was so effective that even an educated man like a proconsul, like the Cyprian proconsul, 
an educated guy was under this demonic spell. We know it's effective today as well. Just look at the fascination with the spiritual realm that is going on all around us. It's out there. And it will try to steal away what Jesus wants to do instead. I'll never forget working at one of the high schools over in Perth. And I couldn't share my faith per se with the kids and that sort of stuff, but my goodness could I share my faith in the staff room. Teaching staff, it was great to really talk about matters of faith. And it was really, I was surprised by how open they appeared to be. But then as I started discussing things, these are teachers, these are people influencing our children. One of them was into the whole Mayan thing. This is before 2012. I should chase them up and go, how's that going for you now? One of the year-level coordinators was heavily into white witchcraft. Someone who was assigning kids to me to work with was into this thing like you wouldn't believe. And a few other teachers were dabbling in it too. It's amazing what people are putting, educated people, people who went to teacher's college for how many years it takes, who could get caught up in such lies for a little bit of power, a little bit of spirituality on show, if you want to call it that. I wish they could see the darkness that I knew was behind it. Ephesians 6 tells us that our primary war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers beyond what you and I can see. And the only way to fight that is spiritually, in the authority that the Holy Spirit gives us to do it. It's through prayer. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's through discernment. It's through His leading that these things can be overcome. And that's exactly the tact that Paul chooses in order to deal with what he encounters here. He takes a spiritual authority he knows, the authority he knows that he has through the Holy Spirit, and he's able to stand against the forces behind the work of Elymas. I think it was old Matthew Henry, one of those guys, one of the old school commentators said this, the servant of darkness was himself put in the dark of blindness. How poetic is that? And we read that when that very real and very strong influence was negated, we read that after that was put to rest, after that was actually out of the way, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus and Roman citizen, answerable to the Roman Senate, had no idea of God at all and said was completely deceived, became a believer and follower of Christ that day. The next stop that I'm going to look at is Pisidian Antioch. I'm going to go further up in a minute. This was a strategic city with significant military administration. As you go through the two chapters, we'll see that Paul has settled into a pattern in his approach by visiting synagogues first to try and find an audience that just might get it. I mean, we always look for the path of least resistance, right? So we will look out for our family members that have some faith heritage. Hopefully they'll get it before the others do. And then after that, he starts going to a wider net. And um, I don't cover, I can't cover everything in this area, but we'll pick up the story after his first sermon in the synagogue. So we're going to go to chapter 13, verse 42 here. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, 
the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we will now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded you, commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. The next Gentile belief blocker that Luke highlights here, one's demonic, this one is a bit human driven, it's called exclusion. This Jewish synagogue is a long ways from home. They were set up there to keep the torch of Judaism alive and well in their city and to ensure the name of the God of Israel had a stake in the ground, even up there in Asia Minor. But they were an ineffective force here. They'd been begun to operate with what can pretty much be described as a disconnect with the rest of the Gentile world around them. Yes, there are converts to Judaism there, but once you're in, we've got a really tight bubble here, and, and it's, like, it's kind of really full on. When the whole city decides one Sabbath to come to hear the things of God, the Jews of the city get caught up in jealousy rather than joy. That tells me there is a disconnect between what they're doing, what God wants them to do, and what they really were doing. If the entire city rolled up on our doorstep one Sunday morning and said, who is this Jesus? Tell us how to find him. Would it mess up our perfect Sunday? Or would it be a perfect Sunday? <laughs> who would run a mile on that? And who would roll their sleeves up and go, let's tell you, let's t- begin teaching. I wonder if we need to make a strategy for that. Unfortunately, the synagogue gets all jealous over this. And it's this response that prompts Paul to pull out an Old Testament reminder of who they as Jews were supposed to be. He quotes Isaiah 49.6 and he points out that just being a light for the house of Jacob was only a small part of who they were. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles and carriers of salvation to the entire world. As the people of God, it wasn't just about themselves. God, even before the cross, had salvation of the heathen in his sights. And when Paul makes this statement, we read that the Gentiles of that city became immediately glad and many believed. And that the word of God was suddenly being spread through the region. 
that there makes us really stop and ponder the expression we make, if you ask me. You see, there is a perception among many in the unchurched world that a faith community is something they don't think they would fit into. Many people I speak with actually state, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough for a place like that. You guys all appear so good and I'm not. How would I fit? I see a smile form in their lips when I inform them that I'm not good enough and neither are you. <laughs> you know, it's like in, in community, it's not about who, how good we are, it's how good Jesus is, right? There are others still looking for the relevance of the church to them and their needs in their community and that's a very real thing at the moment. You and I could argue easily that if the church shut its doors, the city would suffer. Because there's been enough studies to actually point to that, that they've actually done sociological models and plans and thoughts and and actually examined societies. And when churches disappear, certain things, even if people don't go to those churches, morality, crime, all those different things actually shift in those places. But there is still a lack of understanding of relevance. Recent research, there's a mob called McCrindle that studies new suburbs and new um, developments, uh, particularly in the big cities like Melbourne and that, where they're building new suburbs. And they're they're surveying people going, what is important to you in your neighbourhood? Number one, what's going to happen to our kids is first. Where do our youth go? Where do our kids go? Top three and four answers are all to do with the children. Oh, I really want to find a good place to worship. More often than not, it's not even in the top ten. You and I could argue that the doors would, if the doors close, the city suffers. The average Joe doesn't always see that. For some, it's a matter of convenience. If Jesus is real, then we're accountable, right? But for others, it's a genuine perception. They may have a valid point when I look at some of the Christian voices and what they're saying recently. This was on my Facebook feed this week. Even if you don't believe in God, tick no, don't tick no religion, tick Christian. It's one thing you can do to defend your nation, to keep Islam at bay. This image was actually made by a hate page. And it's been shared left, right and centre by Christians. And there are similar, less tame ones, or more tamer ones being perpetuated by Christians. Even if you went to church once, make sure you take Christian for us. The amount of outrage of comments under that going, why are Christians wanting us to do that? Is huge. Friends, if the whole country ticked Christian just to keep a religious group at bay, the church will rest on its laurels and believe the job is done. I think the world's been evangelized and we won't do anything about it anymore. We need to know an accurate picture of who are actual practicing Christians. I don't need nominal people ticking a, a census box from, to give me the false comfort that my job's done. We really need an honest picture of that. Another statement, another Christian voice. I was in Ballarat on Thursday. Ribbons of hope. That one messed me up when I was taking that photo. 
because we also know the darkness that is attached to that. That one really got me. It matters what we communicate to the world outside. It starts with complete transparency for starters, but that's another matter. What needs to come from us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for every person to believe and receive. None of these things that alienates people, but instead, you know what, let's open our doors and go, come. If the Islamic community is on our doorstep, come interact with us. Let us show you the truth. Let's not fight you in census. Let's come and find you, point you to Jesus. Church is not an exclusive club. It's not an impregnable fortress. It's a place where anyone can engage with God and know him personally. And if the whole city did knock on our doorstep door on a Sunday morning, we will love you and we will do our best to meet you where you're at. Paul communicated verbally in this context. And it was a source of joy for the godless people in that city. He did it non-verbally in future chapters where he took his message away from the synagogue and propped himself in the middle of marketplaces. About 20 years ago, a pastor named Matthew Barnett moved to a church in the Los Angeles Latin District and he shifted his whole office out into the supposedly unsafe street so that he could meet passers-by and talk with his community. In Wangaratta, it was a little bit too cold for that. But we did something as simple as putting a smoker's bin out the front of the building so that the unchurched people that were connecting with us could actually work through that habit and still find Jesus at the same time. You should have been a fly on the wall for that discussion amongst the deacons. (laughs) It's amazing what little things it takes to communicate an open door to a community around us and what little things damage it. The third and final element of Luke's highlight reel is found in Luke chapter 14. They're taking their last step in Lystra. So let's go and have a look at this one. This is a little bit lighter. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Lystra 
was a peasant village. <laughs> Clearly not a lot of educated people there. The rulers over them were retired soldiers. And what we read here had a very strong backstory. About 50 years before their visit, a Roman poet named Ovid had retold the story of local legend. Whereas believed the gods Zeus and Hermes came to earth in mortal form and went over to over a thousand homes looking for lodging for the night. Apparently, the only ones to do so were a poor elderly couple. They opened their home, gave them a feast and took care of all their needs. The legend goes on to say that the gods turned their humble abode into a golden temple and destroyed the inhospitable homes and people with a flood. You need to remember, this was way before Google. Way before we had Snopes.com to actually do a fact check which I wish every person knows to find, particularly with reposting stuff on Facebook. The local yokels didn't travel a lot. Stuff like this was told around the dinner table and taken at face value. So when this new, evidently powerful men came into town, there was no way they were going to anger their gods like that again. Paul and Barnabas probably had no clue about much of that either until the priest comes out with a bull and a knife in tow. Out of this religious experience, we see that Luke has given us the third and final belief blocker of our missionary tour. Superstition. The Lyconian understanding of their gods was that they should never put a foot wrong with them or the consequences would be dire. In fact, as we read in history about these gods that were around in biblical times, it seemed every god had to be appeased or kept at bay. If they came near to man, it would only mean disaster was afoot. Worshippers, if you could call it that, would, say, would, would do harm to themselves. They would prostitute themselves for the sake of their gods. They would even sacrifice children. Their religious understanding was fear-driven at worst and superstitious at best. You ever heard someone say, if I ever set foot in church, the walls are caving on me? While some feel they wouldn't belong in Christ's community, others feel they're unworthy objects when it comes to Christ himself. There's an understanding amongst many in our community today that God is angry with them. and They will never, ever, ever stack up. It seems in their best interest to stay as far from God as they could get because coming front and centre before him is too scary to conceive. I love Paul's sermon when he does this, when he, when he says this, when he responds. Obviously, they're not reading in that village much. He's not pulling out chapter and verse. He's not pulling out all the scrolls pointing to the covenant plan or nothing. He's just got something trying to get across a point to pagans here. It says there's one true God who is living and active, not made of stone like you guys are worshipping. He made everything around us. Everything here was made by God. See those mountains over there? He made them. Everything that grows in the sea and the earth. He is constantly displaying his kindness towards you. 
Your crops grow. Your rain falls. You draw breath because God provides all those things. He's a source of your provision and the true source of your joy. Don't worship these statues and for that matter, don't worship us. Instead, turn to Jesus Christ, the one true giver of life and worship, Him alone. That's the simplicity of our message, of our gospel message right there. Sometimes, as much as I love theology, and as much as I believe we all need to have a good amount of theology in us, particularly with a world that has so many questions, we need to be on our game, right? Sometimes it's the simple things that get the point across as well. Don't get so caught up in theology, which is so important, which I'm a stickler for, but still look for ways of getting that message across in a simple sort of way too. All right? Know what you need to know. Then communicate what they need to hear and make the two work in tandem together so that you can actually don't get so lofty that we can't relate anymore. The big idea of this, we just need to point to a real, loving, kind and joy providing Jesus who desires to take up residence in their hearts and is not looking to flood their homes. We're going to get ready for the communion table shortly. We have one massive trip, three key highlights, three major keys to ministering to a Gentile world here. We've all got unbelieving friends. We've got unbelieving family. I know that they're on our hearts often. I've actually, at the end of your note sheet, actually put some questions there for you to reflect. What are you seeing? What of these belief blockers are you seeing in your context of ministry? Because the minute you leave here, you're ministering, guys. You're in your mission field. What are you seeing? What do you need to interact with? What do you need to engage with? What do you need to stand for and with? Stand and fight in the spiritual realm against the demonic forces that are working people's lives. Be willing to do that. Find your strength in the spirit and don't, don't try to go it alone. Don't do the sons of Siva thing in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. No, It's your Jesus. You need to know him. It is the Holy Spirit empowering you. Know him. Know the power that he gives. Know the authority he gives. Operate in that. Give ourselves to earnest prayer. Walk in the authority that the Spirit gives us. There's lots of things out there that are demonic in origin. If it's spiritual, if it's unsettling, if it's manipulating and it doesn't come from God, there's only one alternative in there. Let's be faithful to pray against those things and you'll see the strongholds fall. Second, communicate acceptance. Now, hear me out on this. This does not mean approval. For there are things in life, in their lives and ours, that should not be approved of because our sinful ways are at odds with the holiness of God. The carnal mind is is at enmity with, with God, right? We know that. But he's not unwilling to accept us into his hand and into his kingdom. 
For it's there that true change can be done. We don't ask people to clean up and then come to Jesus. We go, come to Jesus so he can work it, do a work in your life, right? He does the miraculous work in us. We are powerless to say save ourselves. So why clean up out there and then come in here all squeaky clean? doesn't work anyway. It's impossible to do. We can only be made righteous through the blood of Christ. Don't make it such a barrier there, but make sure that when they come front and center to Jesus, that's where change occurs. Once you're in Christ, the natural result is change. That's what the the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians talks about. They communicate, you know what, there's a space in our church for you. There's a space in our community for you, for you to work out your salvation alongside us. There is a space in our community, there's a space amongst ourselves, and you're welcome to take it up. Third, take the time to bring truth and clarity to their religious ideals. It's amazing how superstitious we can be when we think of God. Even as mature believers, we can kind of get caught up in that at times too. How many things do we know about God that are actually scriptural? And what things are in there that we go, you know what, the Bible doesn't say that. Where did I get that from? The world's full of questions like that, and sometimes we are too. Let's get the superstition part sorted out in our own spirit and be able to speak into it out there.